0: When we left our text last week, we were in the thick of battle. Smoke and smell of war swirled around us. Flanked by two armies, two brothers, Abishai and Joab, were making dire battlefield adjustments. One army, a hired band of mercenary soldiers, a skilled tactical force of Syrians was closing in from the open field. And the other, the other army was a storied enemy of Israel, the Ammonites, who were staring them down on the opposite side from the gates. The next few moments would determine the fate of a nation. And what happened? What happened to incite this kind of war to put these two brothers and their country in such a desperate spot? Well. We can call chapter 10 of 2 Samuel a movie. It begins when a great king named David had shown great kindness and compassion to the Ammonites. To a king whose father had just died. And out of kindness and loyalty, out of compassion, King David had shown comfort and kindness. He sent emissaries of mercy to comfort this man who just lost his father. uh, To show kindness to him out of loyalty to his father. But the son, if you know parts of the story of the Bible, the son, like Rehoboam after him, got some poor counsel. The new king's counselors interpreted David's tender kindness as a threat to national security. They read the worst into the best. And so the spurned kindness of the king, an act of love read into as an act of war, now drew three nations into conflict. What a firestorm of evil. What a backdraft of destruction the little tongue can ignite. Be careful, beloved, how we interpret one another's actions. Be careful of reading the worst into the best, whether in your marriage or in our church or at your work. Be careful too of the counselors that you take, whether family, or professional, or from podcasts. Evil suspicion and poor counselors had now unleashed this maelstrom of malfeasance, a wrecking ball of war swinging now into the nation of Israel. We left Joab and Abishai at a precarious moment in this pitched battle, all begun by common, ordinary slander. That's where we left off last week. What will happen now is the two nations converge on Israel. If you're not there already, would you please locate 2 Samuel 10? It's in the first half of the Christian Bible 2 Samuel 10. We're going to resume the battlefield account. We've seen a, a scorned king, the scorned kindness of the king. We've seen a faithful, courageous servant. And today we will see a conquering King. We had a scorned king, a courageous servant, and a conquering king. This is about the success of God's king this morning over his enemies. Let's pick up the story by dropping right back into the highest point of tension on the battlefield. We'll pick it up right in the middle of a battlefield speech. Second Corinthians 10, verse 12, listen to the rallying cry of Joab the general. This is what Holy Scripture says. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came To Jerusalem, this is the word of the Lord. Friends, faithfulness to the Lord does not always end in outward success. The Lord Jesus died on a cross. He looked like a failure. Faithfulness to the Lord does not always result in outward success. But this time it did. The resolve of the king's commanders to carry out their duties in faith while leaving the events with the Lord, had turned the battle in a moment. We remember again the words of Samuel Rutherford that duties are ours and events are the Lord's. In a flash, a situation of certain defeat now turned suddenly into sudden victory. And notice, as we read, without any description of swords clashing or arrows thudding into bodies, We simply see the hidden hand of the Lord at work in this public routing almost instantaneously when Joab engages the Syrians flee like in panicked supernatural fear. And when the Ammonites see how the hired mercenary swords of the Syrians turn tail and run, they quickly follow suit. In the words, if I can quote, in the words of Davy Crockett's sidekick, Georgie Russell, he would say, they're on the run now, Davy. Look at him go. They're fleeing. Alexander McLaren, a Glasgow-born pastor who served some 45 years in Manchester, explains what happened like this. High courage to do their very best. Blended nobly in Joab and his brother with recognition of God's supreme determination of the event. High courage. Blended with their recognition of God's supreme determination of this event. And nothing can stand before men who live and fight with such a temper as that. And yet, as soon as this battle ends, another one is being planned. This entire chapter is full of surprises. And here comes another one. Apparently, though defeated, they had not had enough heat from Israel. They regrouped. They want some more of Israel and her armies. Another shot at the title, so to speak. But with this renewed act of aggression towards Israel, now Israel's king is going to walk into the arena and enter the octagon. So let's watch. As another battle unfolds. We're going to watch the success of the king. Behold the king's swift retribution. Second Samuel 10. Now verses 15. Through chapter 11 verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. But when the Syrians saw. That they had been defeated by Israel. They gathered themselves together. And Hadad Ezer. Sent and brought out. The Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, they came to Hilam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad at their head. And when it was told, David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots. 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subjected to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. As the battle comes to a head, leading one army is this general named Shobak. And according to verse 16, he now leads a large Syrian army of soldiers, conscripted, conscripted this time from the area beyond the Euphrates, verse 16. Why is that such a big detail? Well, this newly mobilized army is no longer a small mercenary force, but Hadad-Ezer now has thrown his entire nation. He's brought soldiers in from beyond the Euphrates into war against Israel. He's ready now to throw the full force of all of his Syrian might at them. He's holding nothing back. He's flexing. He's throwing everything he has, including the Syrian kitchen sink from beyond the Euphrates. And Shobak, who sounds as frightening as his name, is now the commander sitting ready to lead this assault. And the other army? Well, it's no longer Joab and Abishai. It's now the king. Hadad Ezer gathered all Syria together, and now God's king would gather all of Israel together. Verse 17. So the battle lines are drawn up once again. The commanders are chosen. It's Shobach the Syrian commander, versus David, the king. Now before we watch again the battle play out, think again of what brought us to this moment, what lessons there are for us. It all stems from the folly of forsaking the king's mercy. Of of scorning the king's kindness offered in a time of mourning. David offered condolences and they repay it with war. But now their spurning of the king's kindness. The shaming of his servants. Shaving half their beard. Shaving him naked up to the hip. they repeated now several acts of aggression. Now invite the retribution of the king. And retribution will come swiftly. As Admiral Yamamoto spoke of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, so we could now say of this moment of aggression by the Syrians, I fear that all the Syrians have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with terrible resolve. They've woken King David, the sleeping giant. And now he's full of just and terrible resolve. By rejecting the king's kindness, they will now face his wrath. Moreover, think about the actions of the Syrians to regroup and fight again. I think by seeing their actions to regroup, we can see a window into the human condition, to our own lives. Because instead of admitting defeat, they now Want to make war again with God's king. Instead of bowing the knee. They raise their fists. Have you responded to God's kindness in your life like that? Presuming on it. Not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead to repentance. The song of Psalm 2 and our opening order of worship comes to mind as the rulers of this world are taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed king in their wounded pride and their refusal to submit to discipline. Verse 17, the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and want to fight with him. What's happening? Again, Alexander McLaren says the thorns cut down Sprout fast again. If they don't get the root of the weed, it just grows back again. Friends, the problem with all of us is that deep down below our good deeds, we don't need character reform. The root of our rebellion is a heart of unbelief that refuses to believe in God. Because deep down inside, we want to be God or we don't want to need God. I've got it. I'm good enough. God is for really bad people. I'm good. You can stay in the corner until I ask you for something like a waiter at a nice restaurant. Our goodness, professed, keeps God at arm's length. But friends, we don't need better behavior. We need new hearts to be plucked up by the root. The thorns cut down, sprout fast again, and a weed pulled out without the root grows back. What's more, sins, once defeated, often have the power for swift recovery. We are never in more danger of fresh assault from sin than when we have a fresh victory over sin in our life. So learn these kinds of lessons from this battle and regrouping that though we don't face the regrouping of Syrians in our lives, but we face the regrouping of sin and temptation in our life. Let none of us say that having beaten sin and temptation once that we've beaten it finally. While we can celebrate a victory, be careful of the ceasefire because sin can lie dormant like cancer in recession only to roar back worse than it was at the beginning. The devil departed from Jesus in his temptation, but only for a season, we're told. He came back again. Get behind me, Satan, he told Peter. Let us then be sober and vigilant for our adversary seeks to devour us. And we, church family, are never in more danger of a fresh assault than when we've won a fresh victory over evil around us. Learn this lesson too. don't despise the discipline of the Lord, no, grow weary of his correction. And when we refuse to submit to his chastening, we show the self will, the depravity of our hearts. What will it take for us to turn? How hard must the human heart be? Seen in the Assyrians being defeated, they regroup to launch into attack again. They have exchanged now the kindness of God's King for a lie. They now make war against God's King himself. Let us throw his, 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 his restraints off from us. Let us break his bonds asunder. In the words of Romans 2, With this fresh act of aggression. You know what they're doing? With this fresh act of aggression against the king's kindness. Here's how Paul describes what happens. They hardened their hearts and began to store up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. With every refusal to repent. We stack up kindling wood. Attaching it to our souls. Inviting the fire of God's judgment. They have hardened their hearts and began to store up wrath for themselves. We need our sin plucked up by the root, replaced with a new heart that now beats with devotion to Christ. Our world, think of the terrible image in this passage of David the king and how it it shows us Jesus too. There are lots of images for Jesus. Not all of them are wrong in themselves, but many are caricatures and they're incomplete You ever seen bicep man at the gym? I mean, this is all you got. It's a character. It's not cool. It's weird, bro. So you have a caricature image of Jesus that you take one part of him and you make it the biggest part of him. That's idolatry. That's not Jesus. That's a Jesus that you like. He's a tolerant Jesus, accepting Jesus, who gets us, an indulging grandparent. Or it's a Jesus that, that's a projection of our own political aspirations. But what we are about to see is that if we run from the kindness of Jesus, we will run into the sword of Jesus. That at the cross, you not only see the mercy of the king, you see the wrath of the king. His just retribution, without which he would not be worthy of praise. So now in verse 17, the justly, angry king comes into the conflict. And when it was told, David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan. Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Now, David has crossed the Jordan. The conflict is unavoidable and above the thunder of hoofbeats, God's king rides out to war. It's a momentous moment. Because a great king has come to aid his people. Think of this as King David ages and his importance to the nation as the king grows. King David coming to the field of battle will become rare. That is for David the great king to stay behind in a battle is not necessarily a sign of the dereliction of his duty. David is a mighty man of war. Not only is he one of the greatest kings in all of Israel, but David is one of her greatest warriors. Of him people used to sing so much until it Trended on Israel's Twitter feed, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was a mighty man of war. David could write music and play harp with one hand and break your neck with the other hand. David is the king. He's more than a military leader, though. So going headlong into every conflict now puts his own people at risk. Indeed, Abishai, who's now here on the battle. One of the very generals here in 2 Samuel 10, later in 2 Samuel 21, begs David, don't go out to fight, lest you die. And he calls David the lamp of Israel. What a, what a noble expression for the king. David, you can't go out to every battle lest you, as the lamp of Israel, go out. So as chapter 11 Uh, Opens where the fight now being taken to finish off the Ammonites, David now is removed from the front lines, letting others clean up what he started. Uh, the, The point is, this is a special moment, a momentous moment, because David the king, the lamp of Israel, is riding out to war. He's not staying behind. Here comes the king, atop of his neighing war horse, now ready to lead his people. It's an awesome sight. The king has come to fight. There's kind of a a pep and an energy now that goes to the rank of his own men. The king is here, dressed to the teeth, armed for war. The king, whose kindness was spurned, whose servants were shamed, now comes ready to fight to the death for his people. In his eyes were a flame of fire. And when the battle grows the hottest, God's king now rides to the front. And through David in this moment, think of Jesus. Think of Jesus, the son of David, who steps into the fiercest conflict for us. In June of 1891, after nearly half a century of ministry, Charles Spurgeon preached his last sermon to his people. He ended his sermon with words about Jesus, describing him as the captain. That certainly fits our text today. As you see King David in 2 Samuel 10, think of Jesus, the son of David. Here's what Spurgeon said in his final sermon. Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious and generous, kind and tender, anything lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in Jesus Christ, the most magnanimous of captains. Seeing David ride to battle, see King Jesus riding into battle. In the place of his people, the most magnanimous of captains. But Jesus is not only the most magnanimous of captains; he's also the most just of the generals. Because David's riding out to defend his people, and he's riding out to afflict afflict those who've afflicted his own. That's why he's riding out. And so we read this of God and His Christ and Second Thessalonians one verse six. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, in David defending his people, punishing in enemies, we look ahead and we see Jesus doing in full what David did in part. Friends, the Lord Jesus, meek and mild. Yes, the Lamb of God. Yes, he will also come back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God, on those who don't treasure him, on those who don't embrace the good news of the king. Do not presume on his patience. He will come back in flaming fire. Our statement of faith that we read, that very thing. We do believe, as the scripture teaches, God, Jesus will come back and separate the righteous from the wicked. He will return. And friend today, you need to be saved from the holy wrath of the king. Your goodness will never be enough to right all the wrongs you've done. Your goodness is just like counterfeit money. It looks good, but it doesn't do anything. He doesn't know anything about your guilt before God, the God who made you. And you owe him your life. You owe him your love. You You don't need to live a better life. You don't need to read the Bible more. You need to be forgiven. That's what you need. Yes, you don't need God's help. You need God's forgiveness. Why? Because like the men in this text... We're a room full of people at different points in our lives who've spurned God's kindness in a thousand ways. We use his gifts. We use our bodies. We use our breath. We use our minds to serve ourselves rather than him. We've loved ourselves as the neighbor rather than our neighbors as ourselves. We're the ultimate neighbor everybody has to adjust to. We're outlaws of the king. We've outraged the spirit of grace. And we, like dry wood, are only fit for the fire of hell. So the Lord Jesus will come with a greater vengeance than David, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God. So, friends, be warned. Let no one here say on the day that we stand to give an account that you were not warned. Jesus will come after you. The sword of judgment is being sharpened even now as we speak. You are storing up wrath by rejecting his kindness. Don't put him off any longer before that, his his sword that's sharpened, that's hanging over your head, falls swiftly over the neck of your soul and you're done forever. There's but a breath between you and hell, but a step between you and the pit. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, his kindnesses, kindnesses for you and for me. Time is now fleeting and the moments are passing. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming, coming for you and coming for me. That's what happens next in the battle. Death comes for the Assyrians. In verse 18, David killed of the Assyrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen. And that commander of the army named Showback. Yeah, he died there too. And so we learn the wages of sin, the payment for our rebellion is death. So he died there. And at that moment, I picture this drone camera in this movie rising above and swirling around the battlefield of freshly fallen Syrian soldiers and it spirals over Shobak who died there and the words of Psalm 52.7 come over the screen before us. See the man who would not make God his refuge. He trusted in the abundance of his riches and he sought refuge to his own destruction. Now, is there any hope in this text of judgment? Well, there is hope indeed. There's hope that that do not shouts rise and cheers go up when justice is done. Retribution justly done is worthy of praise. Shouts of praise no doubt split the sky as King David puts down the evildoers and their deeds. Yes, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious over the strife for those he came to save. There is rejoicing and hope that the king will make things right again and in heaven All of the questions we have about suffering and the lack of imperfect justice here. No one will have it anymore. We will all say, just and true are your ways. What a moment that will be when the king will be praised for his justice. And we will say, yes, justice has been done. At another level. This passage gives us hope that God keeps his promise an old promise to bless nations through his king. I emphasized in verse 16. That obscure little phrase. That he was gathering people from beyond the Euphrates. Well having now defeated the Assyrians. That means now that the territory. Beyond the Euphrates. Now belongs to God's king. The, 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 the chapter ends. They were all subject to him. All the way beyond the Euphrates. Why is that a big deal now that God's king and his kingdom's territory expands now to the Euphrates and beyond. Because it means God's keeping an ancient promise in a mysterious way. Back in Genesis 15, 18, God told Abraham long before David was even existing, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. So in 2 Samuel 10, the promise to reign over nations. Even the Euphrates and beyond. As now coming to pass singularly through David. Just as we saw in 2 Samuel 7. That, that David is the seed. Through whom God will keep his promises to the world. Now that's happening here. This chapter opens. With evil being done to God's king and God's people. And it ends With good being done to God's king, through God's king and people. In a mystery, God moves in mysterious ways. Do you see this? That God's brought great good from evil. Through the free choices of evil men, God brought about the promise that he made to Abraham. A promise that would save his people. Now, does that theme remind you of anything else? Do you know of another time when God used the plans of wicked men to bring about deliverance through a king? Well, there's Jesus' arrest. There's his trial and crucifixion. And the words of Psalm 2... And the actions of 2 Samuel 10, the rulers of this world, they took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They rejected the kindness of the king. This king had come into his own, but he did not receive him. They plucked out his beard. They nailed him, spread eagle to the cross. Jesus was both the humiliated servant and the scorned king of 2 Samuel 10. But as those wicked men, named in Acts, Herod and Pilate, as those wicked men, Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the Jews, all in this strange ally, Jews and Gentiles, allied together, Herod and Pilate, doing their best to do their worst against this king, Jesus. And yet, through their evil deeds, God brought about his predestined plan. God did not bring about his plan to save the world in spite of their evil deeds, but through their evil deeds. Acts 4, to 28. Indeed, while Jesus was being crucified by the hands of wicked men, Acts 2, 23, he was at the same moment being delivered up by God according to the Father's foreknowledge for our sin. What a Savior. Do you see this? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan and oh, the grace that brought it down to man, that God used the sinful rebellion of people to bring about the forgiveness of rebellious people like you and like me. And on the third day, God raised up Jesus from the pangs of death to give eternal life to all who would trust in him alone. You see, the thematic element in 2 Samuel 10, God using Evil to save His people through the chosen King comes to a fulfillment in Jesus, the Son of David, who reigned from the cross that we might live with Him forever. And I say, what a strange way the Lord brought about His promise. Who am I that a king should bleed and die for? Who am I that a king would cry, Not my will, thine, Lord? The answer, I may never know why God loved me so. Who am I? Who am I? And that brings us to verse 19, to their final response. And when the kings, who were the servants of Hadad Ezer, saw that they had been defeated, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. They made peace with Israel and with David, Israel's king, God's king. Who are we in this movie of Second Samuel 10? Well, by and large, we are the Ammonites. We're the Syrians in the passage who've rejected God and his kindness. And friend, you can reject God by saying you're too good and you don't need him. Or you can reject him by just saying, I I don't want anything to do with you at all. Either way, we fail to see our need for forgiveness and rejected it when it comes. That's our life story. We need God's kindness in Christ. We fall under the anger of the king when we refuse it. And our only hope is not to harden our hearts yet again, but to make peace with Jesus, God's king. In the end. Syrians made peace with God's king. They became wise in the words of Psalm 2. Kings of the earth, be warned, be wise. They kissed the king, an act of of obeisance, of worship, of honor. They honored him and made their peace with him. And that's our role, too, is to make peace with God's King in Jesus. We have to transfer trust from ourselves, from our goodness, from our works. And we transfer our trust to Jesus Christ alone. That's what's happening in the passage. Have you done that? Have you transferred your trust from self to Jesus alone and made peace with him through his cross? Make peace with him. Before he comes to make war with you. This is God's conquering king. Be wise. Be wise. Is he your king?